On this episode of Serverless Chats, I speak with Supatra Rufo about the cloud database landscape. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 36. everyone, I'm Jeremy Daly and you're listening to Serverless Chats. This week, I'm chatting with Supatra Rufo. Hi, Supatra. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. So you recently became the head of solutions marketing at Couchbase. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what Couchbase does? So hi, I'm Supatra. I'm, uh, I'm the head of solutions marketing at Couchbase, which is a, a small startup in Silicon Valley that develops open source, NoSQL, uh, multi-model, document-oriented, and key-value databases. Um, we've raised $180 million in funding, and we're valued at nearly half a billion dollars. Um, as the head of solutions marketing at Couchbase, um, I create the company's market strategy, uh, sales plays um, across different industries and solutions, and I handle all of our compete scenarios. Um, I, in my typical day-to-day, I'm usually looking at complex uh, technical and business challenges and trying to diagnose how we can create solutions around that and uh, working with our engineering team to influence the product roadmap so that our solutions can uh, be integrated in uh, features and um, helping our uh, business teams determine next our next go-to-market investment areas. Awesome. All right, so you have a ton of experience um, and you have a very impressive resume when it comes to, I guess, marketing cloud databases. It's maybe a good way to say it. Um, you know, So I'd love to get some insight from you into how companies, especially enterprises, are looking at migrating data to the cloud and moving away from maybe these more traditional you know, on-prem type installations. So I guess maybe that's the best place to start. I think most people are familiar with relational databases. Um, you know, That's a pretty common thing. And I think that people have a sense of what NoSQL is, you know, I think they're familiar with DynamoDB or MongoDB or Cassandra, those sort of things. Um, but maybe you could just give us um, a little bit of a background on what modern NoSQL looks like. Yeah, yeah. So kind of like NoSQL 2.0. But I'll um, also start in, from the very beginning, too, because I think a lot of people are confused about NoSQL still, which is funny because it's been around for almost a decade at this point. Um, but uh, NoSQL is essentially a different kind of database that doesn't have rows and columns. Um, one good example is if you think about um, uh, an application like Snapchat, uh, on New Year's Eve, millions of people uh, want to use Snapchat at the exact same time. So 11.59 p.m., millions of people get on their phone to use Snapchat because they want to capture the exact same picture at that exact moment. So Snapchat as an application has to be built in a way to accommodate for a very sudden and huge surge in um, in performance uh, for a very brief moment of time and then to scale right back down. Because once people take that picture of them kissing their loved one um, when the bell rings or the ball drops, I should say, uh, then they stop using Snapchat. So then the that goes straight down. So um, what NoSQL databases are great for is they can handle those types of really heavy spikes because they can scale up and down really easily because they aren't constrained by rows and columns like a typical relational database. Um, so that's what the NoSQL uh, databases really offer. Um, since NoSQL databases were invented a decade ago, they've really branched out to lots of different types of NoSQL. So now you have document databases, which handle JSON documents, key value do databases, 
Um, Couchbase is cool because I do both of those things. Um, when I was at AWS, um, I helped with stories about DynamoDB, which is specifically just a um, key value database, uh, which is also a really strong database as well. Yeah, yeah, no, and the thing that's interesting about NoSQL, and, and we're hearing more and more about it, there's um, there's a lot of different companies that are offering solutions for it, and more importantly, I think there are companies that are starting to adopt, and, and specifically for the workloads like you're talking about, that New Year's Eve, billions of records, or billions of transactions in a in a very, very short amount of time, um, but is, is, this, is this something that you're seeing companies, and, and maybe not just your startups and your Snapchats, but um, you're seeing other companies start to adopt? Yeah, yeah, you know, I think... Um the way that uh, consumers behave, the way that, uh, re like just in the retail industry is a good example. So um, you probably didn't know that um, Sears, Kmart, Barney's New York, Party City, um, I can name a dozen more retailers that just last year either completely closed down or had to significantly reduce their number of stores just last year. Mm -hmm. It's because retail isn't done the same way anymore. Those spikes are now a common part of life and people are having a hard time figuring out how to handle it. Um, Tesco, which is the largest grocery chain um, store, um, I'm not sure in America or in the world, I'll have to check that, but um, uh, they um, in 2014 crashed on uh, Black Friday because they couldn't handle the spike in the um, demands that they were getting online. Um, so they lost an entire day of business on Black Friday because they couldn't handle that load, workload. Um, and then the year later, they went on a NoSQL database um, and now they can handle that load. So I think um, what people are seeing is that uh, normal, um, day-to-day -day, uh, business operations are fundamentally different. Um, for example, the fashion industry used to have only four clothing seasons. So like your mother probably remembers buying a new outfit every season. So winter, spring, summer, and fall. And so women's clothers would go and create new clothes four times a year. Now the fashion industry has 52 seasons. So every week is a different season wow. of women's clothing, which means there's a spike every week for every launch of every new clothing line. So that's another big database problem um, that, uh, that you know, is now just becoming a regular part of life. So a decade after NoSQL databases are invented, I think this is now, it's really not, not a new invention anymore. Now this is just the, the way of business. Wow. Well, I can't imagine buying something new every week. I mean, I buy a new hoodie maybe <laughs> once a year or twice a year or something like that. And that's the extent of, of my fashion choices. Um, I, so I think that's really interesting. And I, I think that, um, you know, that's where things are moving is that, that you just, you, you have to become global now, right? I mean, you have to be able to handle these workloads that are just gigantic. And obviously there's some major players in the space and we have AWS and we, we know things like DynamoDB and now some of the managed services they have. I um, you know, Google still has their big table and a few other things like that. Um, you know, and obviously you have a bunch of these startups and I guess startups that are much further along like a couch base. Um, but, but what is the concern there? I mean, data itself is a huge lock-in problem, right? Um, and, you know, as soon as you put data uh, and you've got terabytes of data somewhere, you're, you're kind of there. I mean, do you, do you see vendor lock-in with some of these NoSQL players or, you know, do you see that as a major concern? Yeah. You know, I think this is where, um, this is where things get really interesting. You know, when I was at AWS, I worked almost exclusively on migrations off of Oracle and Azure to AWS. And a database migration is by and large the most difficult thing that you can do in cloud computing. 
Um, it's really hard. You've got to do a lot of data modeling. You've got to do um, uh, your schema conversions. I mean, it's it's really um, it's really a, just a ton of work. And what I have found is that when people are charged with, all right, we got to migrate our database, um, they tend to do it in multiple phases, and that will take multiple years. So oftentimes, they'll first just rehost. So let's say they're on Oracle. They want to get off Oracle, but they don't want to be penalized. Um, so they just kind of take their Oracle license and bring it to a different cloud provider. And they keep all their data with Oracle still. Um, they're just kind of moving it. So um, then afterwards, and that takes six months to a year. And then afterwards, they say, OK, well, I think we're going to um, now we're going to replatform, and then that's a whole nother workload, and that's even more work. Um, and the harder down the line is rehosting, which is where they might actually, excuse me, refactoring, which is where my, they might actually go from a relational database to a NoSQL database. Um, it's much more rare that you see people do a database migration where they go from a traditional relational database on one provider to a NoSQL database on another provider, because it's a really difficult piece of work. Um, so when people make the decision which database they want to move to, it's often a very permanent choice. Um, one interesting thing that I've seen is uh, people choosing not to go with public clouds, which I think is a bit interesting, and we see that with um, with the hybrid uh, solutions that Azure and AWS are coming out with, with Outpost. I think that's a really interesting trend that I'm definitely keeping an eye out for in the upcoming years. Um, and for the vendor lock-in, you know, I think that vendor lock-in is generally a problem that uh, is going to be most relevant to really big enterprises. Mm -hmm. I think the smaller guys still, I still find that they're still pretty agile, smart, and quick. They figure out how to do things pretty quickly. Um, I think for the lock-in, what my recommendation would be is that lots of NoSQL databases, Mongo, Couchbase, uh, DynamoDB, they support a certain amount of data for free on their databases. So for most people, you can actually get that um, great performance completely for free, as long as you have a small amount of data. And as you start to grow, that's when you might be more pressed to make a smart purchasing choice. Um, and then you then you might say, okay, do I wanna do a data migration? Am I really comfortable with this database? Or now that we have more needs and I need to pay for it, what do I wanna pay for? Um, but for the most part, I would say for the life of an organization, that free level is gonna be totally fine. Um, and where the vendor lock-in happens is, you know, I think something like AWS, where I worked at, um, what I found was at AWS, it's kind of like going to Target, where you go and you say, okay, I just need to buy a pillow, but then you see all the other cool stuff at Target, and then by the time you've left the store, you spent $300 on, like, towels and <laughs> And clothes and gadgets for your family. So I think that's some of the stuff that happens with AWS. You know, like take for example, DocumentDB. Mm -hmm. um, you know, which is a document uh, database. Um, it doesn't have eventing. It doesn't have full text search. So if you need those things, you need to purchase additional resources to get that. Right. Um, which means you think you're buying DocumentDB, but now you have to also buy X, Y, and Z. DocumentDB scales by storing its data on S3, so now you are also buying S3. So what happens when you go with a um, provider that uh, does a purpose-built database is you ha you have to be comfortable with buying a lot of different services. Um, and Azure is a bit different, where it's a little bit more like all-in-one, right? So you get like right. you know, Microsoft's very good at the whole like all-in-one thing. 
um, I worked uh, there as well for a long time and um, they love just bundling stuff together. So you kind of, and the downside of that is you never know what you're paying for because you just right. pay a lot yeah. and right. but you got, you kind of get everything. So that's different from Target. Whereas Target you go and you don't know what you end up buying. Um, uh, I liken Microsoft to like the really nice seafood buffet restaurant in town where like <laughs> you're spending good money because the seafood's going to be good. It's not going to make you sick and you can have as much of it as you want. But after you've paid, you realize you didn't eat as much as you think you should have. <laughs> Right. So there's that sense right. that you're not getting that that price um, uh, that you deserve, which is why Amazon has a good edge on Microsoft because Amazon says, oh, we're good on cost because we let you choose, pay as you go. Microsoft says, well, we're good on um, ease and convenience because you get everything you want all in one. So that's kind of some ways to think about those two big providers. Yeah, and that's that's actually an interesting way to think of it because I've always thought of AWS to be very additive, right? A lot of uh, pick and choose the low level components that you need. Uh, and I like that about it. But but when it comes to like airlines, um, you know, where you pay that baseline ticket, and then if you want to bring a bag or get a better seat, pay more money. I um, you know, that always drives me nuts. Um, but but I do like that control. And I, I think that's really interesting. And, and you mentioned this idea of, you know, rehosting, replatforming and refactoring, right? Um, you know, so the migration piece of somebody moving into a public cloud or moving into one of these other tools, obviously, is a long process takes a while to do. And so when they get to that refactoring point and they're and they're starting to get rid of Oracle, for example, or get rid of Microsoft, um, you know, which, uh, you know, which AWS obviously migrated everything off of Oracle. Um, you know, do you see the role of Oracle and Microsoft SQL Server, like, you know, things like that? Do you, do you see those starting to go away? I mean, is that a dying market? No, you know, I don't think it's a dying market. Um, I don't think people are migrating as fast as the hype makes you believe. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and you can kind of tell, like at reInvent last month, um, Andy sort of alluded to that. He was kind of annoyed that people weren't migrating off of uh, on-prem fast enough. Yeah. Um, because it it just takes time, and people want to be smart and careful. And um, you would be surprised at how much both of those companies go through switchbacks. Right. right. So right. and that's yeah. expensive if you're a company that's like, oh, I'm going to do this. And then, oh, whoops, my bad. We're going to actually go back. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, uh, you can imagine that happens with Redshift and Snowflake, you know, so um, yeah. it's yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's it's an expensive process. So I would say that um, I don't think I think it's a dying market, uh, maybe for Oracle. And I don't know, actually, honestly, if that's a technology reason. Um, I think the reason for that is the business, um, the business practices are ones that um, consumers are not willing to uh, do anymore because the terms of the market have changed. Yeah. When Oracle was the only player in town, they could treat you any way they wanted, right? So, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know, like the mafia, right? If you've got, right. yeah. <laughs> if you've got like <laughs> someone running your neighborhood, they can call whatever exactly. shop they want. But, exactly. um but uh, but it's it's not like that anymore. Now there's multiple um, players, and you know I spoke to so many customers at AWS when I was pursuing uh, these stories about people migrating off of Oracle that would say we got audited and found out that we were using features that actually cost us money. We had no idea. So then we get a bill yeah. that is six or seven figures, and then they tell us, hey, if you sign this contract, we'll alleviate this bill. And then yeah. you're locked in for further. So those types of business practices that worked in the past, when your competitors are not doing that anymore, or actually not doing that at all, or ever have, yeah, right. and people say, well, I don't have to go through this and go over here, it's just not going to work. So I actually think that tech in Oracle is not dying. It's just the, their their business philosophy. 
Yeah, and I and I think there's so many more options now, right? I mean, I remember way back when, you know, when the commercial databases that I licensed early 2000s or or late 1990s, you know, we were licensing SQL Server and you're paying for that license to use that and to install that on one server. And when you need to grow, you have to buy a new license, you have to scale back or whatever. Um, you know, you're always paying more money in order to have all that extra licensing. And 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 this model that and I'm sure not it wasn't AWS who introduced it, but this idea of just paying per hour for a database, for example, and for the licensing that goes along with that, um, and you you know you can turn as many on as you want or turn them off whenever you need to, uh, is really a much different approach. Obviously, like you said, you know to that that mob boss mentality of Oracle, maybe. Yeah. And, and not saying anything bad about Oracle. I mean, I'm sure nobody ever says anything bad about Oracle. So you know, we'll keep that we'll keep that level of decorum here as well. Um, all right. So, oh, but I, I I did I did want to follow up on that too because I will say I think um I think I think people when when people say it's a dying because a lot of people say it's a dying uh, market. They say, oh well, uh, Oracle and SQL Server. People, uh, you know, people are leaving that. But people love SQL. Oh, they love SQL. And yes, they do. I was at the PASS conference last month, and PASS has 30,000 members. Those are 30,000 SQL administrators. I mean, that's like a lot of people. And that's just the people that are like SQL administrators that have joined an organization about it. Like, there's probably a bunch that they didn't capture. Um, oh, yeah. And they really love it. And I think, um, um, I don't think obviously SQL is going anywhere. That was one thing I really liked about Couchbase is that um, to query a NoSQL database can be really confusing and frustrating because sometimes people treat it like a data dump, so it's hard to find information in there. Right. And Couchbase has their own querying language called Nickel, um, and it is essentially SQL for JSON. So, um, like, so for example, on if you were to use Mongo or DynamoDB and you wanted to query something, it would take you literally hundreds of lines of code, about 234, I believe. Um, but on uh, on Nickel, it takes seven lines. So, so I was like, wow, that's actually something different and new. And I think um, one thing I learned when I worked at Microsoft and at AWS and when I was um, working on these stories about Oracle and these big companies is I feel like I was often in a situation where um, I was seeing our teams build something that someone else had already built. We were just trying to build something again and compete against them. So for example, the Amazon Managed Cassandra that came out last month um, yep. to compete with Datastax and, um, and uh, open source Cassandra. And those sort of things, and I think I just started to feel like, you know, I think it's time for me in my career to go somewhere where the technology is net new. Someone invented it. <laughs> it's brand new. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think, and I, I do think it's a valuable business play, and it's been done forever to go and copycat something and, and compete within the market. Um, but I also thought it'd be exciting to try some new technology as well. Um, yeah, sure. I think the uh, what I've seen with um, SQL and with the move over to NoSQL is it's not that people are abandoning SQL. Um, the rate of SQL to NoSQL used to be about 90-10. So obviously SQL had a huge, huge advantage. Um, but what's happening now is people are using SQL databases with NoSQL databases. So those numbers... Yeah, the hybrid approach, right? Exactly, the hybrid approach. Because they're saying, okay, well, I don't really understand the NoSQL thing. But um, I want to venture into it, but I'm certainly not going to start migrating all my stuff over. Um, like I mentioned, refactoring is very difficult. So, right. um, so they're just using both. And I think that's really great because um, one good example is Pokemon that I worked with at Amazon. Um, they were using 
Aurora for their um, authentication, and they're using DynamoDB for their botnet strategy, all in one for their logins. So because DynamoDB, you can set a time to live, yep. um, they were able to kill botnets within five minutes. So they reduced their botnet issues, both of their bot logins by 93%. Wow. With DynamoDB. Um, and they have a really great video about it on Twitter. I think I tweeted it. Um, I can also send it to you. But uh, it's really fun. They sort of explain how they how they defeated their botnets. And then they're also using Amazon Aurora relational database for the rest of their authentication process. So it's that kind of pairing of two databases of two different schema types um, that make magic. Yeah, and I actually think that that is something where you just have to move to. And then that's why I feel like, you know, some sort of really large commercial database like an Oracle or like a Microsoft SQL Server, um, you know, it's just not needed at the scale it used to be needed at, right? I mean, you, you get Amazon who is doing, I don't know, a gajillion transactions per second or whatever they're doing, you know, and they're trying to run that on Oracle and, it, and it's basically starting to choke. They have to just keep making the cluster bigger and keep adding more servers and just keep scaling up and scaling up in order to handle, um, you know, handle that because of the complexity of the queries in a relational database. Whereas when you move Move to NoSQL, then the complexity of the query stays the same, regardless of how much information there is. Um, you know, and as long as you, you know, obviously understand your access patterns, but. But that's why I think that you're still going to need relational databases because you're still going to need to do analytics and you're still going to need to do some of those other things. But as we start to talk about scale, you know, where the growth is probably going to be in the market, I think that's going to be with NoSQL, where, where those are the things that are going to be able to support this massive data from an operational standpoint. Um, and, then, and then maybe you take that hybrid approach and you use SQL Server or I should say, you know, a relational database. Um, you know, as you're reporting or or some sort of data warehouse type thing to run analytics on, but certainly wouldn't need to run at the transaction scale as something like a NoSQL database would. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. Exactly right. Spot on. That's why I'm here. You're a smart guy, Jeremy. Well, that's why you're here because you're smart as well, and I, I just I just wanted you to validate me is basically what I, I wanted to do. Done. We can sign off now. So the the thing you mentioned a little bit earlier too was about purpose built databases, and I and I think this is an interesting strategy that Amazon is doing. I mean, I get it, right? If you if you need a time series database, then you know use a time series database. If you need blockchain for some reason, then use a blockchain or quantum ledger or something to that effect. Um, you know, so what? What are your thoughts on these purpose-built databases? Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny because I can't tell you how many times people come up with, to me and say, what does that mean? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. <laughs> right? Because it's a weird kind of word. It's not a real word, right? So, um, but uh, yeah, I think it's good. I, I, I really liked it. Um, you know, the old way of database was just like, you just set it up and you threw your data in there. Um, and purpose-built is trying to get you to like, you, you're using a database because you have an application and that's the database that's going to be used for it. Right. Um, another way to think about it is when multiple databases are being used, put together to for one application like I, or one um, purpose, like what I mentioned with Pokemon. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I think the um, I think that strategy is really good. I would recommend for folks, um, you know, the only thing is there is a little bit of a learning curve. If you're going to be stitching multiple databases together, you got to figure out how to make them work together. Um, and then also your cost is going to go up uh, oftentimes. <laughs> so you got to figure that out. Sure. And um, but, you know, I think the uh, the most 
likely situation is that only large enterprises are going to be using multiple databases. I think smaller companies will probably have find one that is just suitable for their needs. Mm-hmm. So, because um, I doubt that a lot of really large businesses are dealing with a, you know, like a 93% bot login uh, reduce, reduction that they need to deploy, right? So, right. Um, so I would think like if you are a small accounting business, you probably have one database probably fine for your needs. If you are a re- small retail company selling quilts, you're probably not dealing with big spikes. So, you know, so it, for most cases, again, I think SQL, where I said like, hey, SQL's not dying, I think it's going to still be really relevant. Um, but uh, but I do think for, um, so for the examples I see most common are in travel and hospitality. Mm-hmm. Um Retail, obviously, retail is the easiest one, um, and finance. Um, and those three, I would say, is where if you are in one of those three categories, then you need to be doing purpose-built databases, um, definitely for sure NoSQL databases, and you got to learn how to pair relational and non-relational together. Um, one good example here is um, in travel and hospitality is a good one because, um, so I'll give you an example of Carnival. So Carnival is a, a a uh, customer of ours at Couchbase here. So they're, they run like 20, 30 nodes with us and they really take advantage of our eventing. You know, and I know serverless, you guys love eventing. Um, yes, so yes, we love do. Eventing. Yes, we do. So, um, so eventing lets them do this. Uh, you know, I've actually never been on a cruise. Let me preface with, I've never been on a cruise. So I'm going to explain something to you, an experience I've never had. Um, but um, but it sounds very exciting. There. Uh, the the engineer was talking to me about this the other day because I was like, hey, man, I, I'm going to do this service podcast. I'm pretty sure they're going to want to talk about eventing. So um, he's our eventing guy. And he says, oh, I got a great, great eventing example for you. It's, have you ever been on a cruise? I was like, I've never been on a cruise. He's like, oh, my God, you have no idea what you're missing. I, I take a cruise every winter. And he, so, so Carnival does these cruises. And apparently in the cruise, there's like these different rooms for different activities. And um, he said that when you go from room to room, um, they, they put this wristband on you. So it triggers uh, our Couchbase database to say they're in this room now. So all this stuff pops up to you. So like discounts on drinks, mm-hmm. if you happen to wander to the bar, if there's a ballroom, um, you can put in a song, request a song. So this, so this is a combo of both field, IOT, um, and eventing, which is great. And, uh, and it's all in real time. So what Carnival also does is, so for example, if there's a show on the boat and a lot of people have crowded at the bar, um, not only does it trigger to the customer, hey, you're at the bar, why don't I give you these special deals? Um, it triggers to Carnival so they can send more staff from one part of the boat to another. So um, it's really helpful for the business. And Interesting. So I'm sorry, I kind of went on a tangent, but I, I thought it was no, interesting with the... With the cruise eventing, also get excited thinking about a cruise. My husband refuses to do a cruise, so I can only live vicariously through these technical case studies. All right. Well, I have never been on a cruise either because eight thousand people stuck on a boat in the middle of the ocean does not sound like a good time to me. But, anyways, but hey, listen to each their own, and and you know to each their uh, their own purpose built database if they if they need one. Um. So the other thing that you mentioned, and this is something that I'm really interested in because I think when you think of public cloud providers and you hear you know. Andy Jassy 
Galaxy's keynote and you hear some of these other keynotes, you know, even at Google Next and something, you know, Microsoft Ignite or any of these other big tech conferences might say, um, you know, they're they're talking about where some of this stuff is going. And there seems to be a lot of focus on enterprises. And I get it, right? I mean, enterprises have a lot of money. They spend a lot of money. It makes sense. Um, you know, and that's where I think the vast majority of the cloud money is made is, you know, is with enterprise and even with government cloud and things like that now. Um, but I think that one of the things I love about serverless in general, and again, something like DynamoDB or NoSQL databases, you know, is is this this ability for it to start really small and then get really big if it grows, right? So there's a lot of small companies, startups, or small businesses that that can utilize this type of technology. So what what role does pricing and infrastructure play for these smaller companies? Hmm. Yeah, you know, this is a that's a really good question. So, um, so there's a couple of things like if you are choosing a NoSQL database and you're concerned about pricing, you have to look at how the database is scaling, because if it's going to scale up, then you're going to end up paying for expensive hardware that can handle scaling up. If it's scaling out, that would be a lot better. So essentially, if it can shard, if it can shard data, that's going to be more cost efficient. uh, if you can get uh, the NoSQL database, honestly, a software that you can install on your own server, that's probably the cheapest way, mm-hmm. um, like the cheapest way. Because I think my concern for the small guys is if they go to a public cloud provider, that they end up consuming um, features that they don't realize that they're paying for as features. So that example I gave with DocumentDB, where you let's say you say, oh, I want to I, I want to try some eventing, DocumentDB, and then you do it, and you find out later that actually you were consuming additional services. Um, so those are some surprise bills that can happen. Um, the um, you know I think the uh, the benefit though of going with fully managed cloud is you don't have to worry about it, right? So if you don't want to if you want to just pay that premium and you don't have to worry about it, then um, and that's worth the extra cost, then yeah, I think Azure and AWS is a good option. And one way to keep your costs down is to make sure to keep your data really clean, mm-hmm. um, which means you're going to just have to have really good data hygiene. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I, I mean, I think what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is, you know, there are, so obviously we've made a big shift from this idea of on-prem to even just, I guess, general hosting providers. I remember back, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, where it was always the hosting provider. You pay a couple bucks a month um, and eventually that gets more expensive, but you would just upload some code into a server somewhere. Maybe they install MySQL or, or something like that for you. Um, and it was sort of this very simple approach to that. You know, and as things become more complex, though, and companies start bringing in their own servers or try to do something on-prem, um, it gets more complicated. And even if you're a startup, I mean, I, I can't possibly imagine a startup nowadays saying, all right, let's go buy $200,000 worth of Dell servers and rent a co-location facility um, somewhere and, you know, and, and do, you know, do this on-prem installation. I mean, it, it, it seems crazy to me that they would do that. And it also seems a little crazy to me for someone to say, well, we need a database, so let's go ahead and install, uh, you know, directly on a, uh, on a, on a VM. Um, you know, they're going to use something like a managed RDS or, or whatever it's going to be. And I, I think, or I guess what I'm trying to get to is, you know, these services that are built for these massive enterprises. I mean, eventually these small companies might want to become big enterprises, but is there a, is there a way for them to start small with these things? I mean, 
Do you think it's a bad choice to go with DynamoDB or Couchbase if you're a small company? I mean, it seems like a good on-ramp to me. I, you know, I would yeah, think. so actually, so I, I know it sounds crazy to just buy and install your own database and put it in whichever cloud you're in. But honestly, for a small company, that's the best way to stay portable with your data. Um, because essentially, you're buying something that you can put on AWS, on yeah. Azure, on GCP, whichever cloud you choose, and you can move that around if your costs start to overwhelm you. You can easily ch change your provider. Mm -hmm. um, so that was something that I personally had never considered um, uh, because when I was at AWS, we, we, I only talked to large companies ever. Like we were only interested in stories from large customers. So um, I didn't get to interface that much with those small companies. And when I was interviewing with, I think every single database company in the world um, back, you know, a few months ago when I was, um, when I was interviewing, um, I got a lot more exposure to smaller companies. And what I found was they're really scared of vendor lock-in, what you talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. And they wanted that portability while they were growing because they weren't quite sure how their data was going to grow. So um, so actually that that is a really smart choice for them. I think um, um, if, if, so Couchbase, for example, does hybrid multi-cloud, um, bring your own cloud, put it on a server. You can do literally anything you want. And that's something that's common if you were to go to any other small database as well. And I think that's something that when you go to a fully managed cloud provider, you're saying, this is it. Like, I've made right. my decision. Done deal. Like, once you're on Dynamo, you're on Dynamo. And it will, like I said, database migration is very complex, very difficult. It's It would be a significant investment to change it. If you're under 100 people, I would say that, like, find one that is portable with you so it can grow as you change. You can always migrate to a bigger player later if you find that, hey, we're so big, we're going to go do that. Mm -hmm. I will say the nice thing about DynamoDB, though, is I believe 80% of DynamoDB's customers don't pay for it at all because they're on the free tier, which is a permanent level of free right. um, because of the storage is, is uh, allowance is really big. So that is a nice thing about Dynamo. So if you say, hey, actually, I want to go straight to Dynamo, um, that's an easy way to do it and feel pretty safe there for quite a while. Um, while you're growing as a company. So yeah. I think, and then uh, Mongo has um, their community edition, which is totally free. Um, and then Atlas is paid, so you can take that route as well. So I think, um, so that's kind of, you know, that's kind of what I'd recommend. Um, I'm sorry, I wish it was, it's not as declarative as I, I don't, I, I like kind of, I don't want to be like, no, don't do this, don't do that. But I, <laughs> um, I guess I'm, I'm trying to think of if I should be more brisk about it, but I guess, I, you know, I think what I find is hard is, um, I feel like I, I meet people who are, um, like I, I had an, an engineer over for dinner the other day because we moved recently and, and he has been, uh, an engineer for a decade. And he said, so, so, so Patra, like, should I even, should I go to NoSQL? Because I really, I don't want to learn anything over again. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> and I was like, um, and he's like, and then like, which is the best one to go to? Because we're on AWS, so I guess I should just use that. That's probably just easiest. And I think that's often the sort of decision making that happens for people. It's like, what are we already doing? Yeah. So I think it's actually pretty rare that an engineer gets to be in a position where they're like, the, at the very beginning, and they're like, okay, we don't have a single database yet at all. So right. I'm going to choose which one we're going to start on. Right. For most of the time, what I find is people are talking about a database migration because they arrived after something's already been built, and now they're choosing whether or not to stay or go somewhere else. So in that case, it's like, okay, now you're factoring in the cost of the migration, the cost of the 
rehost, replatform, refactor. Right. Um, and then you're and then the burden of that choice feels heavy because you're hoping that it's gonna be permanent. Um, so that's why I say, hey, be portable because you're probably gonna be making a database migration choice later down the road if you're a small company. If you're a large company, pay the overhead, don't worry about it. You know, as mm-hmm. I feel that way with like my kids, like sometimes, like, you know, you just like some things you just kind of go a little bit bigger on like nice doctors because you're like, ah, screw it. <laughs> I pay an extra hundred bucks. So I avoid like more sickness in the future. It's totally fine. <laughs> yeah. And I'm actually, I actually think that's really interesting advice. And and I'll be honest, I, I don't know if I 100% agree with it, um, you know, just because of my, you know, and, and it, it's always good. Whenever I never disagree with a guest, I always feel like, well, we're just talking. We're basically, again, reiterating <laughs> what each other said, um, you know, but I, I do get what you're saying. And, and I think depending on what it is that you're building, that that portability may be important, especially if you're building something internal or things like that. But, um, you know, I, I do think that if you're building something that is consumer facing, that, uh, you know, that choosing that lowest common denominator right out of the gate, just because you might need that portability later, um, you know, might not always be, you know, and especially if it's add, if it adds complexity, I would say, you know, or if it adds additional costs that you might not need initially. I mean, you know, for me, that seems like something that you you would have to weigh to say, do we really think we're going to need to move this or is it something that we can get away with for a while um, and then if we happen to hit you know some stride where we're having some success and, and, and we have to think about migration, you know, you know, maybe that's a problem that comes up. I don't know. I, I just think it's probably one of those uh, it depends type answers. Yeah, I think, you know, and and it seems a bit unfair too because here I am giving the advice from the from the side of being the provider of the database and not actually being a, a customer ever. Like I've never, I've never been in the situation where I've had to buy a database. So that seems totally unfair. So I feel like it'd be a really interesting thing. I'd, I'd love if anyone that's listening to this um, has any opinions to tweet to me and Jeremy what you think, because I would love to know too, because I definitely see it both ways. And mm-hmm. um, and I, 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 and I really um, care about this too, because I, I feel the pain of every person that I talk to who's in the middle of a database migration, because I'm so excited That's about databases. <laughs> I, I want them to be excited too. And, um, and I think for, um, I think for people who are like still trying to explore the new NoSQL world, so that maybe is a net new choice for them. Um, the nice thing is there are so many free trials out there now that they can um, do that with almost no at no penalty or no burden. Yeah. Well, you know, and I, I think the other thing you're going to run into, um, you know, is no matter what database you choose, which technology you choose, you know, whether it's managed or it's hosted, you know, whatever that you've got to or you're going to discover all kinds of things that you never knew, right? You're gonna you're gonna discover, you know, there there are gonna be things that are either welcomed or they're gonna be things that you're like, oh my goodness, why, you know, why do we make this choice? Um, but I think with any technology, there, there's gonna be trade-offs, and you're just gonna have to find the right path for your business. But um, I think for me, if I was recommending to any small company that wanted to say, you know, build a product in the cloud, I would just say. Choose the things that let you prove it out as fast as possible. Get 80% of the way there, um, and if you prove out that model, then you go ahead and you can start building custom things and, and maybe you know more tailored to your solution or whatever. But um, I, I know that's super general advice, and it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, in a perfect world, um, you know that works. But um, you always run into little things where you end up you know with other problems. But um, but certainly you don't want to be spending months of engineers' time trying to set up servers or anything like that that would potentially slow you down. Yeah, and this is uh, I mean this is like a key business. Uh, uh, 
quandary for us here at Couchbase. I mean, that's why we created Couchbase Cloud. Um, oh, that's we, right. This just came out, yeah. right? Couchbase Cloud? Yeah, yeah. So it just came out, Couchbase Cloud. Um, so it's a fully managed um, cloud uh, d- database. And it's everything that Couchbase 6.5 provides. You've got the eventing, full text search, um, the multidimensional scaling. We've got Couchbase Mobile, asset transactions, role-based access controls. Oh my God, I'm going to keep going on and on. Built-in <laughs> caching, server-side eventing. Uh, so, um, so we've got all this stuff. Um, but I think this is part of that business question of just like, well, okay, people want, we know people definitely want Couchbase server, which is where they can just go buy it and they can put it on any cloud that they want. So they want multi-cloud, they want private cloud. I mean, they want private and then they want hybrid. So we also created the fully managed. So now you have every possible way to deploy Couchbase. And I think what I'm going to be really interested to see is how these numbers shift in participation in those areas. I think that will give an idea as to what are people moving to. Because I you know, I'm sure you see it too, but I see in the news all the time people saying, okay, well, now it's going to be a move over to hybrid instead of going full public cloud. Mm-hmm. But I'd love to know what you think about that, if you think there's going to be a shift over to hybrid. Yeah, I mean, listen, every application that I've built probably in the last two years uh, has incorporated some sort of hybrid database technology. You know, a lot of the operational things live on NoSQL or on DynamoDB, um, you know, as that sort of operational side of things that you don't have to worry about throughput and that becomes that source of truth. But things, um, you know, are either replicated into something like Kinesis Data Firehose, they get dumped into S3, they can be queried by Athena, um, or some of it goes into an Aurora database or something like that where you have the ability to then run aggregations and some of these other things, um, you know, that that don't need to run at the same scale as the operational side of things. Um, You know, and I think that this is something that people have been doing for quite some time now. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe I think people that are developing the cloud um, are ahead of the curve in a sense because they're understanding that the scale becomes a real problem when you start to get, um, you know, a bit of usage. Um, You know, and just from a cost standpoint, too, I mean, the on-demand side of things is incredibly flexible from a pricing standpoint in the early days. I mean, I think if you you know, if you really hit scale with some of these uh, these things, you're you're going to start to realize some of it is expensive. Um, but you're also not paying a team of engineers to manage servers for you either. So um, I, I do think that um, uh, you know I do think that is the trend. Uh, but I'm really interested to see whether or not you have massive enterprises that have spent you know billions of dollars building these complex custom Oracle systems um, and have paid these consultants to come in for a year and a half and and sometimes walk away with maybe uh, uh, not a lot to show for it. Um, if you're going to see NoSQL technology start really getting into the enterprise at an internal level and using NoSQL to do more complex things that you know that or things that maybe aren't customer facing, um, but it, it, it's you know starting to replace some of these large I don't know if you'd call them legacy um, you know but some of these older ways of uh, of storing data. Hmm. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I like I. You're like I said, Jeremy, a very smart guy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I, I think you're totally right. I think you're totally right. Totally spot on on that. I mean, um, yeah, I think that's something I'd I'd love to in a year come back and say see if our predictions panned out. But yeah, there's some sort of shift happening. You know, it's surprising how many people um, uh, are doing switchbacks, and it's to me it's mind boggling too because it just seems like an expensive endeavor to take on. But right, I, yeah, I, yeah, right. You have to leave each a pretty high level of frustration and say, oh hey, I. I'm going to go back to where I was before. So, um, and there has to be a pressing business reason, which is I think there's not enough investigative uh, journalism and research research into that. You instead you see you know you see other stuff like oh like who's going to get the Pentagon contract or um, yeah. how much uh, 
I paid on Azure AWS was insane, like those kinds of things. But what I'm really curious about is like, why do people make that change back? Because the business reason there has got to be affecting more people than we realize. So if I find out, I will definitely let you know, Jeremy. Yeah, and that, that's actually something that I'm curious about. And I, I think you see these very big contracts for AWS that get signed. And obviously you hear you know, complaints sometimes that, that the cost gets ridiculous. You know what I mean? That like, you know, the cost of running maybe DynamoDB at scale um, or some of these other things. Um, you know, now again, some of that has to do with optimizations. And I think people don't necessarily use some of these things the way they were intended to. And, and maybe that's a pricing issue. But, you know, what are your thoughts on, you know, does this, does this get to a point where maybe cost is the reason why people start migrating back? Uh, you know, I hate to say it, but I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's the technology, right? Like I said with Oracle, it, it's not the technology, I don't think, at Oracle. Yeah, and right. I don't hear people complaining about the tech, it's more the business practices. And, you know, that's why I liken something like uh, AWS to Target, which everyone loves Target. There's nothing wrong with Target. It's just that when you're in that environment, it kind of encourages you to spend a little bit more than you should. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... Um, I think with Azure, it's that opposite problem where you feel like you're paying more than you're spending. So, you know, you got to, I don't know if there's going to, there's no perfect answer. Um, But uh, I will say that I think the deals are really important here. So with the enterprises, they get, uh, you know, they get their own dedicated sales teams. They're negotiating very specific deals. So, um, and then these guys are very aggressive. They're going head to head often. So they're trying to undercut each other in those deals. Right. So I'm sure that they can make compelling offers to do a switch or a switch back. Um, service is also really important. So if you've just done a huge migration to one provider and then you're not getting the quality of service that you need to really um, maintain or improve uh, on the infrastructure that you've built with them, then you might feel like, you know what, what we're, we're not making it. We don't want to make it a long-term investment in you if you're not making a long-term investment in us. So um, that's another reason I think I've seen people move as they say, you know, I don't think your service teams care about us. Um, another is um, competition. So I think that is why um, some of the uh, database companies have enjoyed a lot of growth is because a lot of in the retail space, because a lot of retailers just will not work on a AWS infrastructure. Right. Yeah. Right. As you said, well, Amazon is just edging us out. Well, they say they don't say that, <laughs> but I think we know that they. they yeah. Right. Do. It makes sense. It's like Amazon is completely edging out their business. Um, they're not going to go and uh, and then they know the AWS is uh, paying for and supporting the rest of that business, so they're not going to go on that. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, so let's let's move on to one more thing. Um, I think a lot of people are interested in what it's like to work for Microsoft and Google and AWS and some of these other big companies. Um, so obviously, you have experience working with Microsoft. You were there for ten years, I think, and um, you were you were with AWS for a bit. Um, so I don't know. Maybe you could just share uh, just what was it like? What was it like working with those two different organizations? Yeah, it was. I'm just, I feel so lucky and blessed um, to get that opportunity, and uh, just really great experiences at both. I have so many friends from both places, and I would happily work at both of those places again. So, really great experiences, and you know, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about both of those places, especially Amazon, um, and uh, and I and it's unfortunate because I think that um, Amazon is. Uh, a really special place to work. It's difficult in the sense where the people are incredibly smart. So anyone that you're working with at Amazon is just just top-notch, really smart. Hiring process is very difficult. 
It's a very difficult filter to get through. So you're really getting some of the best, smartest people in your industry in the world. Um, there wasn't a day at Amazon where I didn't feel intellectually challenged. Um, and that's uh, and that's just really fun. And the same with Microsoft. Microsoft some of the smartest people in the world as well. And Microsoft is more global in a sense. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, so you're really working with like the smartest people literally all over the world. Um, but Amazon, they're smart in a different way. You know, there's a saying at Microsoft that the loudest person in the room wins um, because Microsoft has a bit of a bullish culture where, mm-hmm. um, you know, you like presentations are made with PowerPoints and people with big personalities. And, uh, and you know, it's just, you know, like Bill Gates kind of was built um, his little empire there and um, in a way where, you know, it was just traditional 80s, 90s business culture back then. Um, but uh, Amazon is very different. It's a written culture. So to succeed at Amazon, you need to be a really good writer. The best writer in the room wins. Mm-hmm. Um, Amazon has a very um, strict uh, docu- document culture. So uh, you write these six-page documents, which are one-inch margins, single space, no pictures, no graphs, uh, with an appendix at the end. Um, and it has to be just a business case of why you want to do the thing you want to do. And that's for anything. That's for a website change. That's for a new wow. program. That's to add something. Um, I mean, uh, you really spend a lot of your time writing these business uh, proposals, business memos. And what that does is it causes you to really think very thoroughly um, how what you're proposing to do is going to benefit the customer. Um, so I would say that what the retail side, Amazon.com, um, uh, culture brought over at AWS is really beneficial, which is this sort of customer first mentality. Um, and, you know, I would say the little bit of difference is, you know, AWS is obviously a little more competitor focused. You see a lot of focus on Oracle and, and Microsoft more so than you see what the retail side does. Um, the downsides of working at a place like, or working at Amazon is, um, it is, it is because it is a written culture, it's actually a very introverted culture very quiet. So hmm. it's funny because Microsoft is very gregarious, full of people, everyone's visiting and flying in and you go to fun parties. And I was, I remember my third week into Amazon and I was on LinkedIn and my old coworkers at Microsoft were literally posting selfies with Will Smith. <laughs> and I was like, and I'm sitting in Amazon where it's just quiet. All you can hear are dogs. Everyone brings their dog in, <laughs> and the dogs are making more noise than the people. We're all just working and typing up our memos, and uh, and here my buddies at Microsoft are just like posing with Will Smith. So, I, it's really a truly difference in culture, and um, it's a very introverted culture. So, if anyone stayed for more than four years, they're likely uh, like a, a very serious, written, introverted <laughs> person, um, and uh, and that can be a little nerve wracking for some folks. People do not like that, and. Um, you know, I, I've heard uh, people say, oh, well, I've heard that Amazon makes you cry at your desk. And, um, <laughs> you know, because, you know, that New York Times article that said people were crying at their desks all the time at Amazon, oh, and living, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and living in their cars. I never met someone living in their car at Amazon um, or even sleeping in the office, um, I will say. And um, I thought that there was a very good balance. Uh, people were able to get home to their families, but people were really passionate about the work. Um, mm. So I think it's a great. It's a really, really great place. It's not for everyone. It is very difficult. Um, so I would say that. Uh, but you know, work, work, work can be difficult. So, <laughs> and uh, yeah. and I will say, you know, it's funny because Amazon is known for being um, an entrepreneurial culture. But I actually would. I, I would say that's the one thing I didn't find it to be. I did not find it to be very entrepreneurial. Actually, I found the very top management to be 
be sort of uh, allowed that kind of entrepreneurism. But for the most part, if you are below those ranks, um, the work is very tight. Um, your swim lane is very narrow. So mm -hmm. it, it is run very much like the retail side, which is like, it's almost like a, um, like um, a supply chain where it's like, you have your role, you do your role. This is what you do. You have to excel at that and do it at max speed. Yeah. Um, it's very, very efficient. Microsoft's different. You could come up with some sort of crazy idea. They'll give you a million dollars. You can go and do it. And, um, you know, it'd be like, hey, we should bring Will Smith in for the team <laughs> that's the staff meeting. They'll do it. So, you know, so it's really, really, really different. So it is just different at Microsoft. You know, Microsoft's just been around longer. It's, um, and uh, it's all over the world. And they've got big parts of their business that just print money, you know, Windows, Office, just yeah, prints money without really having to do too much for that. So, and then, um, you know, my, most people don't know, but Microsoft, um, number one customer. I would love for you to guess. What do you think Microsoft's number one customer is? Is it the U.S. government? It is governments. Ah, governments it's in government. general. Governments. It's yeah. not a consumer. It's not consumers and it's not businesses. It's governments. And when you get a government contract, yeah. uh, you are in that country for a decade or more. Um, yeah. I remember at Microsoft working on something that was for North Dakota. We are in every single kindergarten through graduate school. It's running Windows and Office for the next 12 years. Wow. I mean, when you get contracts like that, you just, you know, there's, a, a, like, like I said, Microsoft likes to, you pay the premium, you get everything you want, but you kind of pay, you pay for the full buffet. So, right. um, but the nice thing when you work there, it's, you know, it's, it's a very different um, lush culture. And I think uh, um, people at Amazon would say, oh, well, Microsoft's a country club. That's kind of true, a little true. Um, <laughs> but then people at Microsoft would say, well, everyone at Amazon's crying at their desk. Not totally true, but, you know, it's very difficult work culture. So, you know, there's a little trade-off. <laughs> well, I've always uh, thought it was very generous of companies like Apple and Microsoft to donate computers and technologies to school. But then when you think about it, the more cynical side of you says, you know, well, they're just educating consumers, right? They're they're just grooming consumers <laughs> for when they graduate and uh, go go to work, uh, you know, which devices they're going to choose. So, um, but anyway, so I, I know a lot of people who work at Amazon and, and I've heard some similar things, but I, I think that the people really enjoy the work that they do. And, and like you said, they're very, very passionate about it. But um, I think the bottom line is if you like dogs, work <laughs> at Amazon. If you like Will Smith, work at Microsoft. Um, all right. Well, anyway, so we've been talking for a while, so why don't we wrap this up? But listen, Supatra, thank you so much for being here. Um, if people want to find out more about you, how do they do that? Uh, you can tweet me on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter is S-K-P-R-U-F-O. I'm really active over there. I would love to hear from you. I would love to hear what you thought about um, what I shared today, I love to hear your opinions and your thoughts because I'm always trying to get more information from customers and users and developers uh, to help better inform uh, my ideas and my opinions. So I'd really love to hear from you. So come and tweet hi to me. And if you want to check out more about Couchbase and the new Couchbase Cloud, you can just go to couchbase.com, right? Yes, Couchbase Cloud. Uh, we just launched it uh, recently. So please go check it out. It's fully managed cloud database um, for you serverless folks. It's got all the server-side eventing you're going to ever want. And um, uh, and I just really appreciate, Jeremy, the chance to talk with you. You're such a cool guy. And I love this podcast. Everybody well, loves this you. podcast. So thank you so much. Well, I, I appreciate that. And the, uh, the next time we bump into one another, um, we'll hit up the seafood buffet <laughs> and we will continue this conversation. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you.
And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Sapatra Rufo for being my guest this week. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 36. For more serverless chats, be sure you subscribe and rate the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast apps. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you're interested in serverless and want to discover all the great new articles, use cases, and latest innovations from the serverless community, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week. <laughs>